What's going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Renegade Animation on the Renegade Pop Culture Podcast Network. My name is Mike. I will be your host this evening. Joining me, as always, is my co-captain, Cameron. Howdy, howdy. And today we have an interesting mix. We have to start off talking about The Prince on HBO Max, followed by Centaur World on Netflix. And while we are a little bit late on the timeline, we are still celebrating the 20th anniversary of Studio Ghibli's Spirited Away. But first, we've got some trailers to react to. So Cameron, what do we got? Well, we got two trailers that we need to talk about. The first one is the trailer for the TV series, I Heart Arlo. The TV series based off of the, and follow up from Arlo the Alligator Boy, the film way back in April. It looks cute. I, I mean, it definitely has like a TV feel to it. Like it doesn't have that film vibe, if that makes sense and look. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't look that different from the movie, but just from what I can gather from the trailer, it definitely looks like they're, this looks like something that could easily just play on like a network television. Well, the film looked great and the show looks great on a visual level. They are bringing back all the cast members from the film. So that means we'll have Michael J. Woodard, Mary Lambert, Haley Zhu, Jonathan Van Ness, Brett Gilman, Tony Hale, Annie Potts, Flea, Jennifer Kudlidge, and Vincent Rodriguez III. And it's back together. Yeah, because that's not always a given. And then when it is a given that a cast member returns, they don't really matter. Or, like, I remember when the Kung Fu Panda TV series came out, Lucy Liu was reprised her role as Viper. But then, well, she didn't talk a whole lot. <laughs> oh, but anyway, the show looks cute. Netflix is kind of burying this one, like a lot of their stuff recently. It's the one thing I always, it's that thing that, that will always bother me about them. They need to stop thinking everything's going to be picked up by word of mouth. Because then that leads to stuff happening like, oh, I don't know, them wasting millions of dollars on a Michael Bay film that didn't do well. So, yeah. You got to stop greenlighting things if you're not going to market them seriously. Stop doing it like a month before they're released, you know. But the series looks fun. It has like some of the same charm from the film, from what it looks like. I'm down for it. Same. Then we got the world premiere trailer for the upcoming Masaki Yuasa film that will be playing at the Toronto International Film Festival in New Man, that was a good trailer. Just the emotional ride that it pulled you through. Yeah, we've been talking about this one for a while. It's like this and Belle are my two most anticipated uh, animated films for the rest of the year. Yeah, no, it, it just looks great. And it helps that like the art design is so distinct because it's the character designs are all done by the same person who did Tenkaken Crete which is a really visually stunning film. It looks exactly like something Masaki Uwasa would make, or like he would be like, yeah, this is what I want my film to look like. It definitely has his flair to it. Because then it, it, it makes sense, because if you watch Mind Game, there are some elements to that film that have the same Tenkankin Crete vibe to it. 
and it just looks great. The music, the visuals, the one of the, the main characters looks really distinct. I'm curious to see how that story unfolds of how they handle him. Because the preview made his birth look nightmarish. And this was the preview from Annecy that I'm referencing. We saw the first, uh, what was it, like five minutes of the, fir- of the film? and Yeah, something like that. Yeah, and they showed the one character's birth. I'm sure you can see who it is from the trailer. It, it was definitely interesting. And, but of course, I have faith in Misaki Yuasa and Science Saru. It's a shame that this might be Yuasa's last film for a while, since he's going to be taking a break after this film's release. And I don't know why, but I'm sure it's because of what's going on with the world right now. G-Kids is going to release the film next year. They say early next year, but I've also seen summer, but we'll have to see. I'm sure they're kind of lining it up through a roadshow kind of experience. You know, the roadshow through the festivals. And yep. then once I everything gets better, I hope, get vaccinated, they will release it theatrically like in January. Or something like 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 before like the big award season push happens. God, I hope so. But I also can understand if they're saving it for next year, since well, when Bell gets a fourteen minute standing ovation at the Cannes Film Festival. Yeah, I would I would I would want to stay away from Bell <laughs> as as long as possible. I do hope they pick up. Um, uh, Popele of Chimney Town and Luck Favors Nikuko, which are playing at Fantasia Fest. But we'll have to see. They also have, you know, the Deer God and such. So they have their films. And I'm glad that G Kids is just finally releasing movies again. Yeah, it seemed it seemed like they took a little a little break last year because of Yeah. But that's it for the trailers. We might have skipped one but you'll just have to hear about the actual film next time. For now, we have to talk about another Bento Box series. I mean, do we have to? I mean, we could, you know, build this time talking about knitting or like, can you shoot tiny centaurs out of your feet, Mike? I wish I could. Yeah, because, you know, it'd be a lot more fun than talking about the prince. Uh, Okay, so... This is the show we kept talking about, like on and off, it would get, it was in such a start-stop production hell for years. And then, of course, Prince Philip died. And then it got delayed to this week. Oh, gosh. You know, at least with the American animation scene, we're not flooded with shows every season like the anime season is. But that means that the worst shows in American animation tend to stand out more. Unfortunately. Exactly. The Prince is quite possibly, unless something else comes out, is the worst new cartoon of 2021. And I know you look at the trailer, which came out a day before its release, by the way. You know always a good freaking sign mm-hmm. of things to come and it looks wildly just ugly to look at 
and then you watch it in motion and it still looks terrible and then well <laughs> you watch it mike what are your quick thoughts my quick thoughts are fuck this show this is this is awful but it's a very specific kind of awful it's an awful that is baked into the dna of the very premise of the show for those who don't know this was created by Gary Janetti who he's written for Family Guy and was an executive producer on Will and Grace but most people know him well okay to be completely honest his only claim to, to fame and i use the that term loosely quote unquote is he gained attention for a satirical instagram for Prince George, the son of Kate and uh, William. So basically, this show is an extension of his dumbass Instagram, which is like making fun of a fucking seven-year-old. Yep. That's the entire production history. He got so much mileage, apparently, from a terrible, pointless wildly mean-spirited and sexist and racist Instagram account that someone at our 20th television animation, Bento Box and HBO Max said, let's freaking do it. And here's the worst part. There is talent attached to this. Like, talk about the one positive of this train wreck of a show. For me... It's the voice cast. I actually have a second one. The composer, Rupert Gregson Williams, he, he does, he's done some genuinely amazing stuff. He's one of like Hans Zimmer's uh, protégés. Oh yeah. And he, like, he's composed the score for Wonder Woman, Aquaman, a couple DreamWorks movies. His stuff is really good. His talent is wasted in this. I don't remember any of the music. Exactly. <laughs> So for me, the voice cast is what makes this, well, I can't say it makes it tolerable because the script they work with is awful, but it is the most interesting part of the show. With the exception of Gary Janetti as Prince George, who is by far the worst performer on the show. Easily, easily. We have Sophie Turner as Princess Charlotte. Iwan Rayon as Prince William, Lucy Punch as Kate Middleton, Prince Harry at, um, voiced by Orlando Bloom, Condola Rashad as Meghan Markle, Francis de la Tour as Queen Elizabeth, Dan Stevens as Prince Charles and Prince Philip, and probably the best one of the bunch, Alan Cumming as Owen. Yeah, Owen was my favorite character because while well it's kind of his job to tell prince george like everything that he wants to hear he's still just like he's just a, a genuine human being the best episode of this series was his his solo episode where you know it's his day off so he's going back to the countryside just spending some time from like for himself and even though the annoying prince 
George still like calls him every five seconds. It was nice to like to give this character the spotlight. That was the only decent episode. And then yep. there was one gag that I thought was kind of clever. It's when Kate and William are having an argument and they have their servants, the butler and maid, do stuff like stomp your foot, throw the vase, yell, slap. That actually was kind of clever. It's almost clever, but man, the thing that drags this entire show down outside of its ugly animation and designs are the characters. These characters suck. It doesn't work as like an it's always sunny or a Konosuba kind of you're amused by how terrible these characters are. This is an Alan Gregory situation where the main characters are awful. Just the worst kind of characters and the worst kind of people. You can wave the whole like white flag of, but this is satire. No, you can't. You could, but you can't. See, okay, to be completely honest, I don't really know that much about the royal family, but even if I did, I don't even know where the basis of the satire comes from. Whatever there is, is very boilerplate. All of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle's comedy is, oh, they'd be utterly worthless and stupid and won't make any money when they are, they are cut off from the funds of the royal family. That's not interesting. It's not even a punchline. It's not even a joke. It's just Gary Gennetti thinking he's clever by saying like, oh, ha ha, this is what would happen if they cut themselves away from the money. And it's like, they're not that stupid. Come on. And then the whole like Prince William and Kay Middleton thing, just leave each other. It's not funny when they drag this out and we have to look at these ugly designs that don't even work as caricatures of what they look like. And then there's like the subtle sexism of the show. It hits you over the face with a sledgehammer subtle with like Prince Charles and Camilla Parker Bowles. And Camilla has no lines at all. She's like the Meg of the Prince. She's the punching bag for everyone else and for Prince Charles to basically deflect anything aimed at him onto her for her to get all the punishment from the queen. It just, it, it's not funny. And it's nope. really weird to see this show when Prince Philip is dead. Yeah. So th then it just looks really mean. And I hate that little thing at the, at the beginning of every episode where they're like, chill out. These might be based on actual people, but it's comedy. Ugh. So chill, chill. It's like, hey, you can't make fun of my show. Screw you. Gary, you put out a product. We're paying for that product through HBO Max. We have every right to criticize you. Having that opening disclaimer is like, it's basically the weakest shield to defend against criticism. It's a complete straw man that like, oh, because this is a parody, we can't criticize it. No, we can criticize it for being unfunny, uncreative, and just all around mean-spirited.
And then let's get to Prince George, the one, the character we're following throughout this entire miserable experience. This is condensed, ex- intensified Alan Gregory. He is not likable. And I get that's, I guess, the point that he's a royal snob, but he never suffers the consequences of his actions and he keeps getting worse. That's not fun to watch. Nope. And then they try to give him a story arc. We're going to talk about the musical then. Yes. Mike, you had the biggest bone to pick with this section. The three-part musical, or the three-part story arc. Go ahead. A, the fact that they try to do this towards the end of the series when sure because this is on a streaming service there there is a kind of sort of through line but a you're disrespecting shows that actually put effort into their stories b you're disrespecting musicals and even if i'm not necessarily the biggest fan of oliver just every everything around like surrounding that is just is just awful they treat it like it's a comedy, and that's not funny. None of these jokes land. You're a comedy. Where's the jokes? Where are the laughs? They are nowhere to be found. I would only like, like chuckle once in a while, you know, at some of the visual gags. And it's incredibly like in poor taste to A, have released this at all, you know, but also that this is coming out after Prince Philip's uh, death. It, may, it makes everything surrounding him just that much more uncomfortable. Well, not even that, just that. Even if there wasn't the whole royal family fiasco from a few months ago, when, you know, Meghan Markle and, and Harry went on Oprah to talk about the um, huge amounts of just hate and racism among the royal family members. It's like, even if that never happened, this show would still be a bad idea. You don't make shows based on stupid, vapid Instagram profiles. This isn't Zola. There's nothing of interest here. It's one poorly made joke. And they keep trying to have a plot and it's so maddening because I don't care about these characters. I was more interested in Princess Charlotte's Russian spy plot, but that's mostly because Sophie Turner was the only one who showed up to work. Yeah, like if they made a show about that, I would be so much more interested. Same, and I mean, it's not like the others don't do well. They're just not given good material to work with. Like I like Orlando Bloom, I like Iwan Rion. And Dan Stevens pulls a double shift as Prince Philip and Prince Charles. And it just shows that Dan Stevens is versatile as an actor. And then, of course, we all talked about Alan Cumming. <sighs> this, this show just sucks. HBO knew that they had a dud because the episodes are only 12 minutes long. They released the trailer a day before release and then just no marketing. Yep, they nothing. They just want to, you know, quietly shit this one out 
and have people forget about it the next day. And this stupid show ends on a cliffhanger. <laughs> yeah, fuck that. This show's not getting a second season at all. Holy crap. This show, no. No, 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 no. Even shows like Paradise PD earn their story arcs. This one did not. Even if this somehow got a second season, even if it was just stick figures being voiced by the actors, there's just no way this show is ever going to get better. Nope. This is easily one of HBO Max's biggest failures. One of the worst shows of the year. And just the worst cartoon of 2021. And I hate that it's like, oh, big shock. Hoops was the worst cartoon last year, and now it's The Prince. That means adult animation is bad. No. No, 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 no. There, that's not even remotely true. Adult animation goes through so much hell to even get greenlit. There's a reason why a lot of adult animation looks the same. Do not blame the people who have to work on these shows. Like, blame the people greenlighting how everything should look because if we can get stuff like the midnight gospel primal and even if it's not an adult show centaur world is way more adult than this show will ever be the prince is a juvenile vapid waste of time one more question so the prince or hoops which one's worse i'm too angry to make a thoughtful comment about that they both suck they're the worst Things that adult animation can offer. Let's move on. Fair enough. <laughs> on to Centaur World. Something amazing. <laughs> it's like the polar opposite of quality. This show, we've talked about this show also during the Annecy recap, where they showed the trailer and the cast for this delightful show created by Megan. This show was created by Megan Nicole Dong. It was the biggest surprise of really the last two uh, months when the trailer popped up people were obsessed with this show they were like oh my goodness this show looks wild crazy we have to see it it's trending right now also it apparently it was number four on netflix nice so that's a real good sign of like what's popular right now. This show has legs. <laughs> <laughs> so let's actually talk about the show. This is a story is about Horse, voiced by Kimiko Glenn, who along with her writer named Ryder, voiced by Jesse Mueller, are traveling across a war-torn landscape, carrying a magical item that will somehow help them beat the war and after a great lullaby number rider and horse are separated and the horse gets izakai into another world along with the magical item what world you ask centaur world while she's there she meets a pretty quirky cast of characters when you say they were pretty out there mike that's an understatement indeed this includes 
Durpleton, a giraffe-like centaur voiced by Josh Radner. Wamawink, a llama-like centaur voiced by Megan Hilty. Zulius, a zebra-like centaur voiced by Harvish Sheena. Ched, a tiny finch centaur voiced by Chris Diamantopoulos. Glendale, a Jirinuk-like centaur voiced by Megan Nicole Dong herself. And Horse convinces them to take an, an adventure through the centaur world to find the remaining pieces of this magical key that could take her home to Ryder and her world. Mike, what did you think about this sh- show? Boy, where to even start? Sum, sum it up first before we dive into it. I think the best way I can describe this is you take a blender and you you combine like Broadway musicals with Saturday morning cartoons, modern shows like Adventure Time, Gravity Falls, and then you mix that with something darker like Avatar, Last Airbender, or Gargoyles, throw in a little bit of the Disney Renaissance, and you get this delightful, wonderful, weird uh, melting pot of pr- pretty much like all of the influences that like people our age grew up on. Yeah, this is just another fantastic show released by Netflix. Like we have our many complaints about Netflix and how they handle their shows and their release strategies, but they are letting creative people do really what they want to do. It's like uh, Jorge Gutierrez said during Annecy, what is something that you want to make that couldn't get made otherwise, like on a normal TV channel? And you wouldn't see something like Centaur World on like Cartoon Network or even Adult Swim or Nickelodeon or Disney. It's too specific a combination. It is. And it, yes, this first season is 10 episodes long, but there's a lot to this show that those 10 episodes fill up. Because on the outside, it looks like most modern cartoons. It looks like Adventure Time, Steven Universe, Gravity Falls, Infinity Train. What is exactly different about this show? Aside from the fact that it's a musical. Yes, besides that. I think it's really the experience. First off, the animation for this show is great. Just knockouts. Like, just some of the best TV series animation of the year so far. Oh, I agree with that. It's super expressive. Like, expressive to almost overload. But even then, the overload is so good. They just go the distance with how they make these characters express their words, the songs. It's a, it's really impressive. And, and each character has, like, their own like their own unique way of, of expression. Like my, one, of, one of my favorite gags is um, Gl- Glendale, whenever she gets uh, nervous or anxious, her eyes start to like expand. Yeah. And I mean, they give all these characters their own little quirks that make them stand out. So it's not, and it's not just constant noise. Don't let that first episode fool you and how goofy the show can be. It can be really goofy, and for the most part, it is very funny. It's very wacky, which I like. It's that perfect kind of cartoony, like, silliness that I love. 
I think Derpleton is my favorite character of the show. Maybe next is Zulius. I, th- I just love his name, Derpleton. <laughs> and well, he's the first character you meet in Centaur World. Now he's just like, well, it's like the song says, we have no sense of personal space. <laughs> Real and the music. Oh my gosh, the music for this show is so good. There's a variety of song styles and tunes. And they're all really good, even the short ones. I, I was kind of unprepared for how many songs they would pack into like a single episode. Like three doesn't seem like a lot, like over the span of what is like 25, 26 minutes. But like, it's usually three bangers. That's the thing. Yes. And everyone gets to sing. It's really like everyone has a good singing voice. You can tell that the people working on this show were like not only in the voice cast, but just everyone involved were musical theater kids Mm -hmm. (laughs) because they were able to make the songs flow through the story. Like they never just stop to have a song, which is like the pitfall of most animated films or shows that try to be like Disney, where it's just like, okay, here's the point where we have the song. So we got to halt everything. And then we'll, we'll pick up the story after the song sequence. Every song has a point to it. Even the goofiest ones, like when Derpleton wants to know where food comes from. Like, I'm so impressed. Like, and the music kind of reminds you of, like, the energy that you would see from, like, the Avenue Q people. Yeah, I can, I can, I can kind of see that. It reminds me of a lot of the songs that you would hear from, like, the 2011 Winnie the Pooh film in that regards. Which is funny because, you know the same people who worked on Avenue Q wrote the music for Winnie the Pooh. Well, anyway, back onto the show. And while this show does look goofy and wacky and just really bright and in your face. When it gets dark, it gets dark. So uh, spoilers from here on out. These characters have a lot of baggage attached to them. There are themes of abandonment, loss, abuse, death, and the most, you know, tightrope of topics to go across, depression. <laughs> and you wouldn't expect that, that they would go this hard for a show like this. But you kind of pick up on it very early on, that something is just up with everyone. By the way, did you notice, like, speaking of depression, when uh, Horace finally meets the Nowhere King, and you know his appearance is all kind of sludgy. Did did you get a uh, a never ending story vibe from that? Yeah, the Nowhere King is a first of all he's a scary mofo. Just because for a while the show was very much like very quirky, funny My Little Pony kind of show, and then at the very end, it turns into Dark Souls <laughs> because the. The song is very creepy about the Nowhere King, and then you see him morph and form, and it's like, oh, oh, this is what they were having to watch out about. Can we go back to the singing? (laughs) It works. Like, you are able to pace out the drama and just, like, the characters with their, you know, what they have going on for them. And some of them do get more of the focus every once in a while like uh, Zulius kind of gets his own episode 
horse and Wamawink get their own episode when uh, they see the tree shamans. That was one of my favorite episodes when you actually get to learn more about why Wamawink is the way that she is. It's really touching. And then they wrap it around from the first episode when horse sings that lullaby that writer sang to her that you're okay you're all right and it's it's really touching and that's that saying something when like for some reason a major part of Durpleton's character is that he wants his farts to tell him he's a good boy <laughs> and yeah, at I, first I was like I don't know if I'm okay with this but then you kind of see the you know the subtext of it all it's like, oh, there's something going on with Durpleton. <laughs> Even like the characters in the show uh, kind of bring it up, like with Ch- Ched being like, so who wants to deal with that? <laughs> Do you have like a favorite character, Mike? I kind of love all of the main cast like equally, but I want to talk about some of the side characters because there's two voice actors I just learned are like, are in this one of them we talked about off air david johansson as a uh, bear tar and johansson plays the ghost of christmas past on scrooge and scrooge is one of my favorite movies of all time so to hear him show up as like another villainous creature who let's be honest is basically just like a neckbeard but a monster i mean he's like a nerd historian and he kind of helps horse like with like some of the lore and backstory of the like, entire world even and, though, just, and just in general like just what's going on with the war and everything yeah even though glendale kind of blurts it out during the centaur world song which is like even though we've been at war with a bunch of invading warriors and then everybody's like shh, shh, shh. No, 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 no. We agreed that we weren't going to talk about that. <laughs> the other um, guest star is Flula Borg as Comfortable Doug. Oh, the, the scene stealer. Comfortable Doug. <laughs> I, I can't believe I didn't recognize him at first, that, that that was Flula, but it just makes so much sense the way he talks. Oh, it's delightful. They get a lot of good uh, guest stars for each episode. Like as Durple Toot, uh, Durpleton's talking farts, you got Tony Hale. And then um, later on when Horse's tail starts talking, he's voiced by Paul F. Tompkins. Great casting. Paul F. Tompkins is so good. He's such an underrated comedy actor. And we'll be talking about him more once we get to Jellystone because he plays uh, Magilla Gorilla in that show. Oh, wow. I am yeah. excited for that. And then we get uh, Johanna and Clara Soderberg of the band First Aid Kit, which is which uh, I know uh, Haley was just like, wait, what? They're in this? <laughs> and they play the uh, tree shamans. And they're great too. They're very creepy because they have this whole gimmick of like, it might not be what you want, but it's what you need with their wishes. And those all have like very funny results like ched he's very standoffish towards horse at first and then he gets with his wish and turns into a horse and just panic modes (laughs) and 
probably my favorite gag of the show was when that happened. <laughs> and then we also have Santa Gold as Judge Jacket. These Moltars are very creative, in my opinion. And this whole show is very creative with the whole centaur concept. It's just that this, the Moltars, their noses are their bodies. And they can't see anything. And they do a few funny visual gags with that, like when uh, Comfortable Doug talks to his friend. He's like, oh, yeah, Jenny, she's got my side on things. And then she appears from above him. And she's like, yeah, we're always agreeing on things. And they try to do a high five. And And they're just missing the whole time. Yeah. (laughs) And then we also have Fred Armisen, who is this uh, flamboyant cat tar in Catar Valley, which I'm sure they were making fun of cats or it was just like a parody of cats it definitely felt like um, a cat parody it it, there's no way this was not a cat parody and then of course we have like jamie colin as sunfish sunfish murgai and then rosalie craig as the whale tar shaman and then of course brian stokes mitchell as the nowhere king who is again this voice cast right down to the guest stars there's, there's one we haven't talked about yet. Um, Renee Elise Goldsberry as Water Baby. Um, oh, yes. This uh, hippo centaur that really just tells them what they need to do. And if that name sounds familiar, she's... Um, she's on Hamilton. Yes. I think she was um, Angelica. Yeah. And she's really good. And her interactions with Wama Wink are really funny because they have a history together. Mm-hmm. Just how they're like, hey, Wink, hey, water, baby. And they're just trying to awkwardly hug one another. Like, th- this show really lands with a lot of its humor. There are some jokes where I'm just kind of like, eh. But then they'll throw in something like uh, Ched going just like, what are you, my dentist that comes over every time my dad's out of town? Sheesh, we don't need to know everything, horse. <laughs> and it's like, Ched, you want to talk about that? Uh... <laughs> As you can tell, we enjoy this a hundred times more. No, a million times more than The Prince. Obviously. And then there's this really interesting character arc for Horse. Because throughout the show, she starts out... Like, this was a major complaint that apparently a lot of people had, is that Horse looked way too too much like a Disney horse compared to everyone else. I can kind of see, I don't know where specifically the Disney comparisons come in, but the more cartoony quasi realistic horse, like the ones that you'd see in like Hunchback or Pocahontas. Right. It doesn't reach that. It doesn't reach that point of like Tangled where it's like this great cartoony realistic horse. It's more just like the ones that you would see as like just the animals, not them as characters and such. Right. And, but then as the story goes on, Horse, her body and just form changes to more bubbly and cartoony, or as she describes it, as two beach balls had a weird baby. And at first I thought this was like an interesting, maybe former commentary talking about how animation has changed, because you can kind of see it that way, just a little bit. But then after rewatching it, this show two and three more times it's definitely more of just her losing the ed 
edges. Like she should not look like what defined her, like her experiences and the trauma and such. Don't let that mold you. And when she turns into like a horse that looks like she's from Centaur World, she like it's just her being more comfortable with herself. She's uh letting her guard down, accepting her surroundings and um and really like forming meaningful bonds with her new family right and man the character dynamics in this show are great everyone works well off one another i never thought once of like man they didn't need this character or like oh my goodness i wish this character wasn't on screen i love them all and that just helps with all this good writing that they have and megan just did a good job shaping this world and these characters. And I can totally see why she wanted Glendale. Because Glendale might be the funniest character to show. If I had to pick a favorite of the main cast, Glendale is, no pun intended, the scene stealer. Well, that's because she's a kleptomaniac. She steals, <laughs> she li- metaphorically and literally steals the scene. Like the first time you see her and she sees a magical artifact, she's like, um, can you know, is the horse going to want that? Because, you know, mama-like. <laughs> I, I, I love how, like, she has a stu- like a portal stomach. And she'll just, like, suck up anything that she can get her hands on. And I love when they get thrown into uh, Moltar jail, where the horse is like, how long have we been down here? Ten whole seconds. And already she's like, prisons changed me yeah she has like a muscular torso and then she starts singing prison blues oh and oh man she had the best punchline of the whole of that whole episode when they get out of the hole and then she digs herself out and she's like it was one hell of a circus down there oh hey guys and like hey glendale we didn't forget you and not miss you at all we totally forgot about her and we missed her this does not leave any of us, we take this to our grave. (laughs) It's just a pleasant show and it does that great thing that a lot of cartoons do where they use a very offbeat setting to talk about real issues. Like even with stuff like uh, Zulius, when he enters the Kattar kingdom, he's (laughs) probably, I think he has like the best moments of just like, oh, I don't have obvious problems. I don't know what you're talking about. It's like, what's with the hair curler things? Or is it, it's like, none of your business. And then like spraying the cats with water and then wearing a robe. I, I think Zulius might be my, the funniest. I don't know. I, I like all these characters. They're all very funny in their own ways. It's hard to pick between the main cast because they all, like I said, they all have their own unique quirks. And and because each one has at least like if not if not a whole episode then like then just like um one particular subplot that's like devoted to them i just love the show and these characters so much and this is why like netflix so far this year has been making like the best show like new shows because otherwise you know owl house is really freaking good this year we'll we'll talk about owl house season season 2a once we reach the mid-season finale Right, right, right. And so far, Netflix has hit it out of the park. And they have such distinct shows and movies for really everyone. You have Kid Cosmic for the superhero action adventure stuff. 
then you have like America the Motion Picture for your uh, adult comedies. You have the Mitchells versus the Machines for your overall family films. You have City of Ghosts, which is your like family show with a very distinct uh, field and low key vibe. And then we have Centaur World, which is really for everyone. Like, I mean, you can make arguments that it's definitely more for adults in some ways, not in the like, oh, they curse and it's super gory and violent. It's just, the show gets dark. <laughs> I'd say this, this show, it's for that young adult audience that like, that really latched on to shows like Infinity Train, Kipo and the Age of Wonder Beasts. I said Adventure Time already, right? Yeah. Yeah, Adventure Time, Kipo and the Age of Wonder Beasts, Infinity Train, that's basically your target audience for this plus musical theater nerds right i mean like kids can this might be a good show for kids as well like yes it gets a little dark at points for for like really young kids but i think this show has a way of like showing kids that like hey you might be feeling this specifically like sadness depression and all that stuff like, I, I think it would be important to show them this show. Also, It's like how kids um, watched Inside Out and then are like, oh, now I have an easier way to tell my family how I'm feeling because Inside Out showed me how. It, like, Centaur World is, I think it's tied to City of Ghosts as my favorite new cartoon of 2021 so far. That, th- those two are, are uh, tough acts to follow. Well, and they're just so different because you wouldn't say Centaur World is like Kid Cosmic or like, or Kid Cosmic is like City of Ghosts. It's, it's, it's just great. This is why I like Netflix and their animation teams. The teams that make these shows and films for Netflix are telling distinct stories. I might not like every show, like we talked about over and over again, Hoops, and I might not enjoy Paradise PD but there's something for everyone. It's not for me, so I'll just watch something that they give me that attracts me or appeals to me. So I definitely recommend watching it. Yeah, you, this is one you just have to experience for yourself. Like we gushed a lot about about this show, but you won't you won't really know what it's like until you try it for yourself. And I really hope you do because it's amazing. It definitely ends on like. I'm hoping we're going to get a second season. I think we will. I think we will too, but... I want to see at least three seasons. That's a good solid length for this. Because this is definitely a more story-focused show. Because like every episode mostly pushes the story forward. And that's the beauty of animation and the, this time period of animation. We can have episodic syndicated like single story episodes or we can have story driven shows and they can both exist in the same area sorry it does you know people kind of dismiss one type of storytelling in animation and i'm just like no animation is not limited please don't do that (laughs) yeah i agree with that but now we must move on to our next stop at the ghibli journey one of, if not the biggest Ghibli film out there. The one that I would argue was the film that put Ghibli on the map 
in the U.S. It's basically the one I think helped put Ghibli on the map in the U.S. Because yes, they tried with other films beforehand, but they weren't really like the biggest things ever. They were just like, oh, this is this was a pretty good movie. Oh, the Studio Ghibli. Oh, all right, that they made they make pretty good movies. And then I know we they tried with Princess Mononoke. And now it's supposed to be the big one. The big, like, yes, Studio Ghibli will be a household name. And it just ended up as a major critical success among the film critics and film people. But then, not really anyone else. But then, in 2002, we got Spirited Away. Mike, what did you think about this movie? Um, so it's not it's not my favorite, but I think this is undeniably Miyazaki's um, crowning achievement as a filmmaker. Um, strictly from an animation perspective, um, this is like one of the first times this, and to a lesser extent, Princess Mononoke. Where, where Miyazaki was really kind of experimenting with computer animation. This looks just gorgeous. Everything from, you know, from the architecture to the food porn, and there's a lot of food porn. The first time I saw this movie was, I don't know, like 15 or so years ago. I don't think I even saw like the whole thing, just like, just kind of like parts of it. The parts I remember are the ones with Suzanne Plachette as Yubaba and Zaniba. But yeah, this, this, there, there's just a lot to love about this movie. I'm, I'm not even sure where to start because there's just, there's a lot to this one. So as many will know, this is one of my three favorite Ghibli films. It's this, Castle in the Sky, and the yet-to-be-talked-about Porco Rosso. This was really the first film for me that got me into Studio Ghibli. What really kind of drove me to like foreign theatrical animation it's one of those it's that movie that just hit at the right time and this you know this was this film has a kind of an interesting production history of because Miyazaki retired for the first time after Princess Mononoke because he was like okay I'm done I have no more stories to tell but then during a family vacation he saw um, these girls reading, I think it was like a magazine or like a Shonen Jump kind of thing. And he was just like, oh, what do little girls see as heroes? There were two shoujo manga. Um, yeah. Nakayoshi and, uh, and, and uh, Reban. And he saw that it was all like the magical girl stuff. And he was, well, <laughs> he was Miyazaki. He was kind of appalled. <laughs> he was like, what the heck is this? Okay, after this vacation's over, I'm going to go back into the studio and make another movie. <laughs> I mean, that's not really what happened, but why else would he be driven to do so? Because, <laughs> you know, he's Miyazaki. He, he, so, he, he always has to be the, ki the king of the castle. Yeah, because he's like, nah-uh. Makoto Shinkai made your name? Oh, no, no, no. We're going to make another. I'm going to make one more movie. Screw that. I still want to be king. 
and I say this in jest, of course. It's just, you know, it's those directors who are like, oh, I'm done. And then once in a while, he's like, actually, I have a great idea for a movie. That's the thing, like, I always say about directors who retire too early. Like, you can't retire from being creative. Right. So let's actually talk about the story. So the main story revolves around a young girl named Chihiro who's moving into a new place with her parents and her dad voiced by Michael Chiklis, takes a wrong turn and ends up like in front of this weird wall. And he thinks it's an abandoned amusement park. They make their way through and they see this little village area and it's full of restaurants. And the parent, Chihiro's parents end up, well, gorging on the food there while Chihiro goes and explores the uh the re- like everything else and then runs into a young boy named Haku voiced by Jason Marsden and Haku is just like a human oh oh no 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 you got to get out of here <laughs> and as Chihiro tries to escape the village her parents are turned into pigs and she ends up stuck there on the other side of this gorge area where there was what like no water before and now there's water And it turns out she's in the spirit world where a bunch of spirits come to this one little area, eat, and then go to the massive bathhouse that the whole place is built around. It is up to her to find the courage to to get her parents back and leave this place while finding out the mysteries of this town and this bathhouse. So, Mike, this movie is 20 years old. This movie came out when I was 11. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) What would you say was the main, like, what's the main appealing factor of this movie? Like, what would you say it is? I think it's just, just, like, all the fantasy elements. The, I guess, kind of wish fulfillment of, you know, escaping to just, like, a world full of... uh, wonder full of intrigue and i guess just from a design standpoint like all of like the like the different uh care character designs of like the spirits probably the most recognizable is uh no face we'll talk about him though i'm partial to the radish spirit that was always like my one of my family's favorite characters oh yeah the the radish spirit though those things were cute and it was definitely like People, or at least major and casual film goers, have never seen a world like this. They've seen like samurai films and very like we take historical accuracy with no sense of like trying to be realistic shows and movies. (laughs) And here we have this young girl who gets trapped here and it's a coming of age story because Chihiro like journeys through the bathhouse first encountering uh, Kamaji, the boiler guy who's played probably in his best performance. If I had to pick one by David Ogden steers, like to me, this was like his best performance. And of course, David Ogden steers, you all would know him as Cogsworth from beauty and the beast. Yep. And uh, general Radcliffe from Pocahontas. And uh, Dr. Jumba Jukiba from Lilo and Stitch. Oh, 
by the way, the other Lilo and Stitch. Oh alumnus. yeah, Chihiro is played by Davy Chase, who voices Lilo. And that that was interesting to find out years later because I was like, who voices this girl? And it makes sense because I think Lilo and Stitch came out around the same time period. I um in the U.S. they were they were released from in the same year. That makes sense. And then, of course, uh, Chihiro meets the ever snarky Lynn, voiced by Susan Egan. Who is, who is uh, Megra from Hercules. Yeah. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, she's great in this. I love Susan Egan. And then she meets the titular Yubaba, voiced by Susan Placetti. And Yubaba is just a great character. Like the one of the big selling points of this film's story is that there's no real bad guy. I mean, Yubaba is kind of evil, but she's more just like a very strict, no chill businesswoman. She's trying to make sure the crowd and everyone is happy at the bathhouse. You steal the food from the spirits, well, you're going to get punished. Because there is more to her than just being an evil witch. I never bought her as evil, more as just like, just kind of no nonsense. And because she does have like a soul, (laughs) even though that's amusing to say. She does have, I mean, she's done bad things. Like she takes Haku's name, like actual name and Jihiro's name when and Chihiro's name during a majority of the film is Sen. But she also has a kid that she loves to death. And by the way, uh, Bo, the giant baby that you meet, is voiced by Tara Strong. God, this voice cast is so good. I, honestly, I think this voice cast is probably the most understated like voice cast of like a Ghibli movie because I don't think about the voice cast when it comes to Spirited Away. Like, it's not the first thing that pops up in, in my mind. It's not like The Wind Rises or My Neighbors, the Yamadas, where it's like, oh, the voice cast is a major selling point. It, they went at this like how a lot of Disney films go about casting for their animated films. It's who would fit this role? Doesn't that, matter if the. And that makes, a, that makes a lot of sense because, um, you know, they. For for this cast specifically, they did get a lot of a lot of the Disney alumni, like Jason Marston. We know from you know, um, the Goofy movie. He's Max. Yep. And then we have like Bob Bergen and uh, Lauren Holly, Paul Eiding, uh, John Ratzenberg um, pops up here, and then Bob Bergen plays um, got got a. Uh, Arugeru, the little frog guy, and No Face. We'll get to No Face in a second. Oh, and um, the voice of Squidward, Robert Bumpus, plays um, the uh, like the Bandai Geru or the foreman. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. And it's it, it's just a it's a very good cast. It, it's like you don't think of it like, oh, this is a tier. Ghibli dubs cast, but it is. It's probably the best one, at least in my opinion. Though that I mean that that's not saying like the ones for like Princess Mononoke are bad. It's just 
the right voices for the right characters. Agreed. And probably also Joe Hisaishi's probably one of his most iconic scores. Like I still think about that piano sequence. Like even when I'm not uh, watching the movie, uh, like it, it's just a beautiful score, and it's one that you that sticks with you. I mean, granted, that's because Joe is a beast, mm-hmm. and I really do think he sh- he should be in like the discussion of greatest composers of all time. Right. And I think like what makes this movie amazing, just like outside of like the writing, the animation and such, though the animation is great. I think it's really, this was Miyazaki firing on all cylinders. It felt like the most balanced of like he like of what he likes to talk about, like strong female characters, his uh, environmental messages, which I thought was used in a much like in one of the more creative ways in his filmography because then sometimes I feel like he he undersells it or oversells it but I like how they handle it here when like they have to deal with that massive stink spirit Mm. and how they like Chihiro finds like a quote-unquote thorn in the side of the stink spirit and then pulls out and says all this junk, all this mud and gunk. Basically, the, basically pollution. Yeah, pollution. And the film also talks about something that's very interesting. It like like I said, it's a coming of age story, but it's also the the power of someone's name. Because Yubaba holds the power over Haku and Chihiro by taking their names, like literally taking their names, then giving them a different one. And I think that's really cool to see. Well, it's a very interesting approach to a more antagonistic character. And and like, it's a little more complex because you don't see that, like the power of names. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a, um, it's a, uh, a subject that not a lot of these really touch upon. Like, you know, that question of what's in a name, it, it dives maybe not that deep, but deep, deep enough that it be, your name is tied to like specific memories. Right. And, and like your personality. I guess it's time to talk about one of the creepiest characters in, in any animated film. Let's talk about No-Face. At first, he kind of shows up just very faintly, just in the background. And he stands out because that's just a great design that freakish mask of his well and then says his whole figure is just like this ghost like being and a lot of the designs are great here like i love uh kamaji the boiler man and i love how the little soot spirits look oh those 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 soots are adorable oh they are they're one of the they're just a great little moment in the film but with no face like jihiro lets him in because she's kind because she just thinks he's just another customer at the bathhouse. And then he eats the little frog guy. That's when he kind of becomes this, uh, this greedy. All, yeah, this, this like all consuming monster. Because he's like, he's, gre- he's alone. He's like, 
he has some kind of depression stuck to him because of this like of his loneliness and that thinking that like i can just give you everything you want it's that feeling of like kubo and the two strings uh talked about where emotions equal life and he thinks that like i will heal my wounds my metaphorical wounds by giving you gold and if you don't like that i'll eat you and it, it like and again he's not really a bad guy he's just volatile and just makes bad mistakes and and i know it's like we're kind of like i don't know what do you think about this it's a really poignant sort of metaphor for you know for how we all kind of deal with our emotions and how some people deal with them in more healthy ways and others will be just consumed by them yeah i think that's really smart and that's what's so great about miyazaki films a lot of the best ones do not have outward bad guys like e- like even like nausicaa and well castle in the sky they don't have outward bad guys and even like the wind rises doesn't have straightforward bad guys i it's just fun to see a studio so committed to like it's not going to be black and white it's going to be a gradient and then there's just so many iconic scenes in this movie like when the boat arrives with the spirits when um chihiro runs down the stairs oh yeah that freaked me out as a kid and then see the stink spirit or you see the radish spirit for the first time i love the little sequence when uh lynn helps chihiro get into the elevator with the radish spirit and distracts the employee guy with with the roasted newt <laughs> yeah that, that's just a great little scene i think I would- i'd want to eat a newt but this whole film's like way of showing off food it's like i don't know i guess i try a fried newt <laughs> yeah as far as like favorite scenes honestly i think pretty much every scene in the bathhouse is iconic in one way or another but but if i had to choose one it's the first time that we see um what do they call it the like herb token or whatever oh yeah the, the bath tokens yeah and then it's just like there's the sequ- the sequence well like we could just talk about every scene like almost every scene is iconic it's that feeling of like every frame's a painting like when Chihiro encounters no face when after he's like big and just corrupt and then the whole sequence there but I would have to say the best sequence in the film or at least one of two is when Chihiro and everyone talks about this scene because it's just so good just like a perfect movie scene like from start to finish 100% no faults movie scene is when Chihiro gets on the train with her little friends and no face. It's all visual storytelling and Joe Hisashi's gorgeous uh, musical score. And it's just them sitting down. And there's just so much that you can take away from it. I think that scene is just, it's permanently ingrained, like, in my subconscious. It's just, it's... Like I said, it's a perfect scene. And to me, this is like a perfect movie or what I would define as a quote-unquote perfect movie. I agree with that. 
And it's just, it's all just like from the story up to that point of Chihiro growing up and becoming a tougher, more self-sustainable individual. And just like her nervousness just went away after she got on the train and she was ready to encounter Yubaba's twin sister, Zaniba, to help uh, Haku. And <laughs> I was watching it yesterday and my dad kind of pointed out like the lamp thing that they encounter looks like something from the Muppets. But I also know that lamp thing is a play on the iconic Pixar lamp. I mean, Miyazaki and uh... the head of the time, John Lasseter, were very close. Mm-hmm. It was just interesting to see that because as a kid, I was like, oh, that's a cool way to animate a lamp. And then it's like, oh, duh, it's a Pixar reference. And I love that like Zaniba is just entirely different. I mean, she looks like Yubaba, but she's just chill. She actually has chill. And I love the whole like punchline of like, oh, I got my seal back. Oh, how did you break it? And then Chihiro thinks like, oh, that slug thing? Well, I squashed it. And then Zaniba's just like, ha! Oh, man, that was the thing that was controlling Haku. And I can't believe you did it. Well, and also one of my favorite scenes, but just going to rewind back a little, is when um, Chihiro comes back from seeing her parents in the pig pen. And you see that Kamaji like looks over and she's in and it's just like he's kind of tough of her at first because he's just like I'm so busy I have to run all the heat and the bath stuff and then she he sees her sleeping next to where the soot spirits come out and he puts that little pillow over her it's like oh that's adorable and and then or like early then later on when he gives her the tickets and uh Janice is like or Lynn is like, what the heck's going on? And Kamaji gets one little, like, it's like an emotional story beat, but it's also kind of a jab at Lynn. So, like, it's something you wouldn't recognize. It's called love. It's like, okay, you're a sassy little sarsaparilla, Kamaji. <laughs> and, but though then, I, I think my second favorite scene is when uh, Haku returns to Zuniba's to take Chihiro and the uh, the crow and the baby who are turned into little animals uh, back to the bathhouse. And Chihiro realizes that she knows Haku, who was the spirit of the Kohaku River. They're like gliding, like not parachute falling down, but just like gliding through the air and just the tears coming off of them and such. It's another great example of Miyazaki just like throwing in his love of uh of flying he manages to do that in at least all the movies that that we've watched for uh for the podcast yeah and and again it's just like this movie's so good at its story like I said I think this is like Miyazaki at his most fine-tuned because you like you do get little glimpses of a memory that Chihiro has, but they never like cut away from the main story. For I mean, they show like little glimpses of it, but they don't take like ten minutes to explain it. You get that Chihiro is remembering something, and it just happens to be at that time period of when they're returning that she remembers and she explains it. And I just love that. It's it's good storytelling because you know anime can sometimes fall into the trap of having to be the exposition dump <laughs> and uh, such. But yeah, but this is but this is a great example of of show don't tell. 
I mean, granted, I know Chihiro is talking to Haku, but it's, but it's like, but it's told well. It's executed well. Like I said, I just love this movie. I really don't have any complaints about it. Me, me, me neither. Uh, it's perfect. It really is. There's a reason why this movie won Best Animated Feature at, during the second um, Oscars that had the Best Animated Feature Oscar. And it beat out quite a lot of movies. And there were just like also smaller little details about this film. Like Kirk Wise was the director of, the, of like the English dub. And, you know, he also directed Beauty and the Beast, which, of course, got them nominated for Best Picture. Yep. Which I thought Spirited Away should have won Best, should have been nominated for Best Picture, but eh, that's just neither here or there. Like, there, there was just something about Spirited Away that won the world over. And then that's when Disney was like, okay, we'll bring over a mass majority of the films, except for Only Yesterday and Ocean Waves. Right. But yeah, it's it's because of this movie that Studio Ghibli became the household name that they are. It, like, there's a reason why this was a lot of people's first Ghibli film, like yep. or like first major Ghibli film. Like I said, I know different times Kiki's Delivery Service and My Neighbor Totoro were brought over first, but nobody really cared until Spirited Away came out, and then everyone started to rediscover the films and we'll have to hope we get to Kiki's delivery service and all the others in good time. But yeah, I mean, obviously from you, from what you can tell, this is a huge recommendation. If you, for some reason, haven't seen this movie yet, please go see this one as soon as possible. I know they're doing a fathom events, uh, Ghibli fest screening of this film. Though knowing what's going on in the world right now, they I don't know if they're going to cancel it or not, but you can watch this film on HBO Max if you want to. Or you could just own all the movies because that's what I do. <laughs> Before we get to recommendations, Mike, do you have anything else to say about Spirit of the Way? I've said pretty much everything that I needed to. As far as where it ranks on the Ghibli list, it's in my top three. As of right now, there is kind of a three-way tie between Castle in the Sky, Spirit Away, and The Wind Rises. I think I think these these each kind of represent um, like specific milestones in in uh, in Ghibli, sure, but Miyaz- but Miyazaki's personal growth as a filmmaker. Right. No, I understand. Yeah, and like I said, Spirit Away is in my top three, along with Castle in the Sky and Porco Rosso. It might be my favorite movie of all time. Like, I have to think about it, but I'm really comfortable with saying it's my favorite movie of all time. It's a damn good one. Yeah, it's a classic for a reason. But before we get to recommendations, let's spin the wheel. Wheel of Ghibli, turn, turn, turn. What are you going to give us? Well, I was kind of hoping for Porco Rosso, but we are going to have to take a quick stop to 2011 slash 2013 with the Hayao Miyazaki written but Goro Miyazaki directed from up on Poppy Hill. Oh, we're taking a Goro break. Yeah, and this might be his best movie even though I still have plenty of complaints about it. This will be interesting. 
I think it's actually quite charming, but I also think that is because Miyazaki wrote it. <laughs> like, not to take everything away from Goro, but, you know, after you watch Earwig and the Witch, you kind of have to retrospectively go backwards and see what happened. But we'll have to see how that goes. But I can't wait for you to see it. It, it was like the first Ghibli film that G Kids picked up. Oh, that, that's that's cool. It's really the one that got them started with their relationship with the company. And it has a great voice cast, too. That, that's probably also one of the best voice casts for a Ghibli film. Well, we'll just talk about it next time. As for recommendations, yeah. um, the, the one that jumped out to me, um, and I kind of mentioned this in my quick thoughts for Spirited Away, I kind of find that movie to be like, Miyazaki's version of Alice in Wonderland the you know the classic 1950 Disney animated film and we know how big of a Disney fan Miyazaki was like those movies were like a huge influence on his art style so it it is it does kind of make sense that he would eventually make a make his kind of sort of tribute to a movie from his childhood Right, right. Now, uh, so you're talking about the original Disney animated film? Yep. Yeah, I like that one. I rewatched it recently uh, when my sister and I were hanging out. And we both very much enjoyed it. Now, for my recommendation, we'll talk more about this show next time. But I think everyone needs to go to HBO Max. And instead of watching The Prince please watch Jellystone, the new cartoon by C.H. Greenplatt, uh, who made, you know, he's the guy who made Chowder and Harvey Beaks. I just think he's a super talented, really creative individual who just unfortunately got the short end of the stick on Cartoon Network and Nickelodeon. I have to say his take on the Hanna-Barbera characters are great. Some of the best laughs you'll have this year even just like the clip that they released um a couple days ago <laughs> with the uh food coma joke that killed me i think my two favorite jokes from there was when uh huckleberry hound launched the the flare into the sky and it says a, a flare in the shape of his head and then it just goes help <laughs> <laughs> and uh then like when cindy bear is trying to be like all cool and csi miami um, and such with the wordplay and Huckleberry Hound is just like Cindy please I'm sorry I had to yell at you <laughs> even though that's how he sounds like at all times like I was not ready to laugh as hard as I was when I was watching the show and I had to really stay quiet at my place because I was la I was ready to laugh way too hard and it's just, it's just a good show. I don't want people to ignore it because it's based off of the old Hanna-Barbera characters. But you know what? We'll talk about that next time. I'm excited to, to finally get to watch that. But speaking of next time, our next show will be, we will be talking about Jellystone. We've got from up on Poppy Hill. And any, anything else you want to you mention for next week? We're going to be talking about the one and only Vivo. We're going to talk about it. It's I'm excited. I've seen it already. It's really good. It's another hit from Sony Pictures Animation. But again, we'll talk about that next time. That, that'll be a fun show. But for now, 
Cameron, where can everyone find you online? You can find me on Twitter at CamsEyeView. I have a website called CamsEyeView.biz where I review animated films and shows called The Other Side of Animation. I have a Patreon at patreon.com slash CamsEyeView. If you like my work, you can support me that way, and that's where you can find me. And you guys can find me on Twitter at CaptainK42. You can check out all my quick thoughts on letterbox.com slash CoachK42. Find me in all the various Facebook groups just at my name. You can check out Renegade Pop Culture on Facebook and Twitter at Ren Pop Culture. You can also look for us on Podchaser. We are still developing the Patreon details to be determined. You can listen to all of our podcasts on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen. And last but not least, everything can be found at renegadepopculture.com. Need escape? So do we. That'll do it for this episode of Renegade Animation. Thank you guys for joining, and we will catch you guys later. Peace out. Bye.